Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am the priest, Carl Stevens. And I am the rabbi, Daniel Bogard. And today we are up to chapter 5 in the book of Exodus. Um, and uh, Daniel, do we want to go back and just, just catch people up? Uh, Moses and Aaron have finally gotten to Egypt. Uh, Aaron is the one who has performed the miracles and and given the big speeches to get the the leaders of Israel to follow them. Um, and now comes the moment when they're finally going to go before Pharaoh. Yeah, they have finally organized enough. They've done the groundwork that they can take their demands to the leadership. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so all the community organizing has happened, the knocking on doors, the community meetings. Yeah, right. We, I mean, we joke about that, but when you really think about it, that, that stuff must happen, right? Yeah. And people are people, and organizi- organizing is organizing. Right. And uh, undoubtedly, there are a bunch of people who are not so sure this is a good plan and are hanging back or kind of kvetching on the sidelines. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about it more when we uh, uh, get to the actual Exodus moment. But there's actually a Jewish tradition that says that three quarters of the Jews chose to stay in slavery rather than join wow. the rebellion. Wow. That's a big chunk. Yeah. Oh, I said three quarters, four fifths, excuse me, 80%. Wow. That's, 80%. An, that's a bigger chunk. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, yeah, I want to talk about that more when we get to the point. But for right now, should we just uh, charge right into Chapter 5? Let's dig in. Uh, So I'll be reading uh, once again from safaria.org, S-E-F-A-R-I-A.org. And I'll be reading from Robert Alter's Five Books of Moses. I feel like we're getting predictable. We should change this up somehow. That is true. Um, I will be reading from the King James. Actually, I won't, though, because... I, it would not sound good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mostly because I can't handle the, the, the English. Yeah. That, thou art less than capable of that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I am. St- <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, okay, we've amused ourselves if no one else. So yep. uh, let's dive in. Okay. Uh, so we're on verse one of chapter five. Uh, afterwards... Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, well, what is this afterwards, first of all? What are we after? I think it's after the community meeting. So the people uh, okay. heated and the Lord, that the Lord singled out the Israelites and that he had seen their abuse and they did obeisance and bowed down. So um, chapter four ends with this moment where all the people uh, seem to be bowing before the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an interesting question because... There is an act of worship, and it is uh, going to bookend the verse that you just read. So uh, finish finish the verse, and, and we can talk more about worship. So afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Adonai, the God of Israel. So I, I, I know we were going to finish the verse, but, you know, uh, uh, I'll interrupt again. Yeah. Uh, so, right, like Pharaoh has no idea who this guy is, and we see the word Lord in our Bibles, and we know this sort of capital G God that we're talking about, but Pharaoh evidently would not, right? In, in that sense, the God of Israel is going to be a much more descriptive word for him than this holy name, Adonai, yod heh vav um, Yeah, well, that's interesting because I, yesterday I was looking up different names for God, um, and what I read on the Wikipedias is that there are two ways of naming a deity. Uh, there are actually... There's a cool word for this. They're called theonyms. Um, 
just like homonyms or antonyms, I guess. Theonyms. Um, And you can name a god uh, with an attributive name, uh, or you can name, that is, naming all the things that that god does, all the god's Mm. attributions. Or you can name the god uh, with a personal name, uh, which is just like a, a, a name, like your name or my name. Um, and I think, isn't Adonai, isn't that more of an attributive name? Wasn't Adonai a word that just um, stood in as like a, a term of courtly respect or something? Yeah, so the word Adonai uh, literally means my lord. Uh, okay. But it is just a substitute for the word in here, yod heh vav heh. Uh, which is this sort of impossible verb of existence, was, is, and will be all wrapped up together. Um, But that's so uncomfortable, right? It was uncomfortable for Moses, who wanted a different answer uh, when God said, I am that I am. Uh, And it's uncomfortable for the rabbis who insist on calling this God Adonai, my Lord, which is where we get our tradition of uh, writing Lord here. Mm Mm-hmm. And in a way, they're both attributive names because even uh, Yadhe Vavhe, if I said that correctly. Well done. Yes, the Tetragrammaton. Thank you. Uh, even that is really more of a description, right? Because it's a verb uh, than it is yeah, totally. a name like Bob or Ralph or, or Marjorie. Totally. Um, well, we get a relational name here too, right? Adonai and the God of Israel. Exactly. Exactly. So I I don't know why this seems important to me at this moment, but it does that that in this passage of scripture, maybe in most of scripture, what we're dealing with is human beings trying to name the divine by the attributes that they can place upon the divine. That mm. that we know the divine through the actions of the divine and not uh, like we would know our friend just from like sitting around with that friend. Mm, mm, mm. Nice. Okay. All right. Finish the verse. Yes, we can finish the first verse. So Moses and Aaron say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may celebrate a festival for me in the wilderness. All right. I, you know, this always surprises me doing these close reads, how many things I've missed here. Because, right, the, the first let my people go is not so that they can be free. Right. So that they can have a festival for me. Right. And I always thought that that was kind of a ruse. Um, I always thought that the, the festival, the celebrating in the wilderness, uh, was just a trick that God was telling Moses and Aaron to play on Pharaoh because Pharaoh would understand it. Pharaoh would understand the need of a deity to be worshipped because in Pharaoh's mind, Pharaoh is a deity and he needs to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. Um, but my friend Jason Pratty just wrote a, a blog post for the ADSOBigRead.org website uh, which really kind of argues the opposite, which says the essential act of the people of Israel, the most important thing they are ever going to do is worship God. Um, uh, And in fact, it is in the worship of God that they find their freedom. So this is not a trick at all. This is God saying, uh, if you want to attribute to me uh, the title of your God and and, um, the actions of your God and the actions of being itself, that is fine. I'm going to attribute to you your own verb, which is uh, worshiping. Mm. You know, we've really got these sort of twin moments of birth of the Jewish people 
we have this moment uh, sort of literally passing through the birth canal of slavery into freedom through the Red Sea. Yeah. But then we also have the moment of formation uh, at Mount Sinai. Yeah. Uh, and in that sense, this verse is really just leading us towards what the story is all going to be about, which is all of this is pointing towards Sinai. Right, right. That is where they will celebrate God in the wilderness. Okay, let's just go on and, and, uh, and see where we go. So first, a moment on this uh, uh, experience of Moses and Pharaoh, excuse me, Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh. Right, this has to be an intimidating moment, first of all, right? Moses, who's had this previous relationship with this guy, uh, and Aaron, who's showing up as a slave, presumably, yeah. uh, are going to have the chutzpah, uh, the nerve to go and uh, uh, bring these demands to Pharaoh. So it, actually, if you look back at the earlier uh, verses, we're told that the elders are supposed to go with them. So the rabbis asked this question, where have the elders gone? They're not mentioned here, even though God had said to Moses, you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. So the Midrash picks this up and says, our sages explained that the elders did indeed go with them, but stole away singly or in pairs, <laughs> so that by the time they reached the palace of Pharaoh, not one of them was there. I love this, right? I can so imagine, you know, I really wanted to go with you, Moses, but I forgot I got to change the laundry. It's just been sitting there, like, um, right? Everyone's got their excuse until it's just Moses and Pharaoh sitting there, uh, uh, and Moses and Aaron sitting there in front of Pharaoh. Wow, is that depressing about human nature? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but right, isn't this true of our own activisms so often too? Well, right. It reminds me of something that uh, I've, people have been saying about um, in these last couple of weeks. A couple of weekends ago, there was this big NFL uh, kneel down protest. Sure. And afterwards, a lot of uh, pollsters uh, showed that this was not at all a popular action with the American public. Hmm. Um, and, and then there were a lot of opinion pieces written of, you know, if we just waited our time, if we just waited till the moment was right, then it is possible to do something on behalf of justice and bring everyone along with you. Um, and then historians respond to that by pointing out that uh, – 60% of Americans disapproved of Martin Luther King when he was active, um, you know. and, yeah, and we forget that. Right, exactly. Like we make people saints after the fact, but while they're acting, their action is so disruptive that the majority of us are actually opposed or we just kind of fall away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let, let no one say we don't make good time. We're already on verse two. Yeah, yeah, and, and only 11 and a half minutes into this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but Pharaoh said, who is this Adonai that I should heed this God and let Israel go? I don't know, Adonai, nor will I let Israel go. Right, this is how I think we expect Pharaoh to respond. Right, and there's another midrash that you pointed out, uh, which I really love. Um, this this is midrash Rabbah. Um, that day was Pharaoh's day for the reception of ambassadors, when all the kings came to pay him honor, bringing with them gifts of crowns, with which they crowned him Lord of the World. 
They also brought their idols with them. After they crowned him, Pharaoh's servants came and said, Two old men are at the gate. When Moses and Aaron entered, Pharaoh asked them, Who are you? We are the ambassadors of... Adonai, Adonai, blessed be he. Uh, what do you want? By the way, interesting that Pharaoh doesn't seem to know who Moses is here. Yeah, has no right because he was raised as his grandson. So yeah, let's he's grown out his hair. He's you know, yeah. <laughs> he smells like sheep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, what do you want? Says Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord God of Israel: Let my people go, that they may observe a festival for me in the wilderness. Has he not the sense to send me a crown that you come to me with mere words? Wait while I search in my records. Pharaoh went into his palace chamber and scrutinized every nation and its gods, beginning with the gods of Moab, Amnon, and Sidon. He then said to them, I have searched for his name throughout my archives, but have not found him. Is he young or old? How many cities has he captured? How many provinces has he subdued? How long is it since he, that being God, ascended the throne? I love this. I love yeah. this midrash uh, because it's such a human idea of God that Pharaoh has here. Right. Uh, he assumes God is like him. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this is a common actually trope that is found in rabbinic literature, which is that fundamentally what idolatry is, is the creation of God in our image. And it's yeah. the reversal of the sort of uh, – uh, Genesis idea of God creating us in God's image. Uh, And that to be Pharaoh at some level is to create gods of ourselves or gods of our ideologies or gods of our truths. Uh, I I had a rabbinical uh, professor uh, who liked to say the great power of monotheism is that uh, it's a good reminder that you are not God. Yeah. And can never be God. And can never be God. Right. Um, and and maybe that's why people resist it, or the Israelites resist it when they make the golden calf, and Pharaoh resists it, uh, because what monotheism seems to demand is that we give up our pretense uh, of control. Mm. Hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Give up our pretense of control and radically take responsibility for the power we do have. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and if those of you listening at home are hearing squeaking, I apologize. My uh, golden retriever puppy is below my feet and is uh, uh, having, sounds like a quite the dream. Well, there we go. Dreaming, no doubt, of um, appearances before Pharaoh. But yeah, of course. Of course. Okay. Verse 3. And they said, The God of the Hebrews happened upon us. Let us go, pray, a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he hit us with pestilence or sword. And the king of Egypt said to them, Why, Moses and Aaron, do you disturb the people from its tasks? Go to your burdens. Okay, so they put this on pause for a second. I think it's interesting we get another name of God here. Right? Yeah, the God of the Hebrews. Uh, the Hebrews, before we had God of Israel. Right. So we've got a, a different idea here, right? And Hebrew, of course, comes from the uh, Hebrew word uh, avar, to pass over, to pass through, or uh, uh, those people who come from another place who have passed over to here, uh, or maybe another word for them would be refugees. Yeah. Uh, 
which is interesting, right? Imagining a God of refugees rather than a God of a nationality like the Israelites. It is interesting. And uh, when Manoj was with us uh, two episodes ago, he also referenced this idea that there's an Egyptian root word, Habiri, I believe it is. Yeah. uh, That some scholars think Hebrew also draws from, and it means the same thing. Like they're they're the strangers. Mm -hmm. Um, But I like, I don't know what your translation says. Ultra says the God of the Hebrews happened upon us. Uh, which makes it sound like very coincidental, like, you know, just a meeting on a street corner. Um, yeah, though, it sort say? of was, right? I, I've got to, has manifested God's self to us. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Nikra appeared upon us. Uh, or we've sort of seen him, chanced seen him. Uh, but it is what happened, right? From Moses' perspective, from the Israelites' perspective, this wasn't planned. This wasn't right. They didn't go out into the wilderness seeking a God. Moses was minding his own business, pasturing his flock. And there was the burning bush. Yeah. It also seems to imply a worldview in which human beings will meet with divine beings on a a regular enough basis that you can say something like this in passing and people will totally get it. Right. Mm. They'll be like, Oh yeah, yeah. I ran into a God at the mall the other week. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um, so, so that's, I, I think as time goes on in this narrative, we'll see this God distinguishing, uh, becoming more and more distinguished as the one and only true God, but it's not always the case that people are thinking that way. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, do you want to take the next verse? But the King of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you distract the people from their tasks? Get to your labors. And, Pharaoh continued, the people of the land are already so numerous, and you would have them cease from their labors. Uh, Right? So what is Pharaoh's immediate response to this? Economic. It is. I'm not quite sure I understand the already so numerous part. Um, Wouldn't their being numerous mean that part of them (laughs) can cease from their labors? I'm no doubt thinking about this wrong. Yeah, or, you know, there, there is a sort of Jewish midrashic tradition that says that one of Pharaoh's methods of uh, sort of destroying the Jews, because he has this great uh, ethnic anxiety that's happening here, right? Yeah. Uh, is that he overworks them so that they don't have time to make children. Ah, okay. Uh, and there's this whole midrashic oh, tradition right. about how the women of uh, Israel would sneak away into the fields that that uh, Pharaoh wouldn't allow the men to go home at night uh, so that they would uh, stay in the fields. They could work from dusk till dawn and then uh, wouldn't have a chance to uh, make any new children. Uh, and the women would sneak away uh, and uh, uh, find their husbands in the fields. So when uh, Moses says, let us go off to this festival, Pharaoh is hearing, let us all go have more babies. Let's exactly. This. Yeah, okay. Wow. Exactly. Okay, well, that makes, that makes perfect sense of it. So that same day, Pharaoh charged the taskmasters and foremen of the people, right? So they, they make this request. Uh, Pharaoh responds with economic anxiety. Right, they, they're really just asking for something basic. They're not even asking for freedom. They're asking for a three-day vacation. 
right? They're, right. They went a long weekend. Uh, right. And uh, uh, the response is brutal. Yeah. You shall no longer provide the people with straw for making bricks, as you've done before. Let them go and gather the straw for themselves. This is what Pharaoh's saying to the taskmasters. But impose upon them the same quota of bricks as they have before. Don't reduce it. For they're shirkers. That's why they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Right? The, the real complaint is that they are uh, lazy. Yeah. Uh, right? Gosh. It, it, you can hear so much of, sort of sure current racism in the, the ways that we currently sort of demonize those who are already been marginalized. Right, right. Like, why do the people of Puerto Rico not deserve the same amount yep. of attention as those in uh, Texas or Florida? Well, because they're shirkers, they're lazy, they won't use the things we give them properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they are an ethnic minority. And they are an ethnic minority. Yep. Um, and we are anxious about that particular ethnic minority becoming larger and larger. Yeah. White people. Yeah, are. right. That's This is the power of the Exodus narrative is there's something I think that taps into just the human condition at every moment and every age. Well, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier that – we now, you know, by by exposing this, we are exposing that we are Pharaoh, you know, that um, we are taking on the mindset of Pharaoh out of fear and a need to control. Um, and it doesn't really matter, like, how justifying our rhetoric is. Uh, we are not worshiping God mm-hmm. by this kind of mm-hmm. thinking and action. Powerful. Powerful. Yeah, yeah, we well, always we're up today. <laughs> we, we, we always see ourselves as uh, uh, Moses and the Israelites, right? Uh, we but, do. But we're the Pharaoh too. Yep, yes, all we of are. us. Yeah. So the taskmasters and foremen of the people were at verse ten. Uh, oh, excuse me, verse nine. I skipped. Let heavier work be laid upon the men. Let them keep at it and not pay attention to their deceitful promises. Now, verse ten. So the taskmasters and foremen of the people went out and said to the people, "Thus says Pharaoh." I won't give you any straw. You must go and get the straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But there shall be no decrease in whatever your work quotas have been. Then the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters pressed them, saying, You must complete the same work assignment each day as when you had straw. And the foremen of the Israelites, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. Why, they were asked, did you not complete the prescribed amount of bricks either yesterday or today as you did before? Okay, thoughts on this? Yeah, let's pause here. Well, there's a, there's a good midrash for this, uh, midrash rabbah. Uh, these Israelite author, officers, these Israelite officers were worthy men who jeopardized their lives for Israel, bearing the blows of the Egyptians so that Israel's task might be lighter. For this merit, they were subsequently endowed with the Holy Spirit, as God later instructs Moses, that being in Numbers. Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, said God. Since they were beaten for Israel's sake, therefore they will merit the Holy Spirit and be appointed as prophets over them. Hmm. Now, once again, this uh, this is like a Game of Thrones thing, right? So the... Uh, 
here these characters are being introduced in episode uh, five, and it won't even be this season, the Exodus season of the story. <laughs> It'll be the number season of the story where they come back in uh, to be appointed prophets. Yeah, yeah. You know, I it speaks to. I mean, this midrash speaks to that. I think deep human need and thirst for the world to be a just place where people who do what is right, who step forward and take the blows to protect other people are in the end rewarded. Right. Um, because so often when we look around our world, those are the people who are not rewarded, right? Those are the people who take the blows and because they took the blows, they're beaten. Well, and this is where the whole idea of, of heaven or the resurrection come from. Um, you know, those ideas which Jesus took and ran with were not original to him. They were active in, in the Jewish world at the time of his life, and they were active because there had been these Jewish martyrs who had been killed in mm-hmm. the uprising against the, um, oh, the Greeks. What was the name of the Greek? I'm not going to be able to remember it right now. But um, these martyrs have been killed, and there was this question of justice. How can it be just for them to be dead and the dominating forces to still be dominant? Uh, there must be something that happens after death in order for justice to be complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's certainly the Jewish notion. You know, afterlife um, is not a central Jewish idea. We certainly have some discussions about it, but it, it's not the focus of uh, who we are, what we talk about, or our goals. And, we, you know, we don't, for instance, ever believe that you have to be a Jew to achieve some sort of afterlife. Mm-hmm. But the discussions we do have about afterlife are all derivative rather than axiomatic, right? They're, they're not, we don't take it as a granted that there is an afterlife. It's instead the idea that God keeps God's promises and this world doesn't look like the world that God promised to us. So there must be something else. Right. What that something else looks like might be as mysterious to us as uh, a verb, which is both present, past, and future all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's there. We just don't know how to name it or describe it. Yeah. Yeah. I think Christianity is gradually going in that direction as well. I, I know in the Episcopal Church, you know, there are still people who have fairly traditional ideas of heaven, I'm sure. But most of the people I know are uh, instead wildly speculative. And uh, I, that feels right for this moment in time. Mm. Uh, for us to admit that, that we don't know and yet also claim that we can have faith. God, I, I think it's so powerful, right, to live in that space rather than needing to resolve that space. Right. I had this great moment this week. I, I spoke at uh, Christ Cathedral, uh, one of their formation groups, which, speaking of which, uh, uh, to any of our listeners in the uh, Southern Ohio Diocese, I would love to come out to your church. Uh, but anyhow, I was out uh, uh, speaking there. And I was talking about the idea that Judaism isn't really a faith because you don't have to believe in God to be Jewish. And I said, you know, Mm -hmm. to be a Muslim, you have to believe in God. Uh, I I was recently at a Catholic school and I asked them the question, can you be a Catholic who doesn't believe in God? And they all said no, very clearly, just as the Muslims at the mosque I went to said. Uh, And I asked the Episcopalians and they all said, well, 
<laughs> and I knew I, I, I was with my people. I was with my people. Um, it was wonderful. Uh, I find it wonderful too. Some people find it very, very disturbing. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. 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 Um, well, as Rilke said, live the question. Live the question. Amen. Amen. So, okay, so are we at verse fifteen? Uh, I believe fifteen. Okay. So let's go on. Um, and the Israelite overseers came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, "Why should you do this to your servants? Straw is not given to your servants, and bricks they tell us make. And look, your servants are beaten." And the fault is your people's. And Pharaoh right, this said, is, of course, absurd. How can you expect people to uh, take on all sorts of additional responsibilities and have the same efficiency they've had before? It's impossible. Right. And he clearly says the fault is your people's. They're not saying it's, it's the people as in the people of God's fault. It's like you Egyptians are doing this to us. Exactly. Uh, and, and what's interesting is not just laying it on the feet of Pharaoh either, it's saying it's your people's. Um, so this is an entire system of dominance. We, we get one voice, one person, Pharaoh, uh, who seems the most dominant. But in fact, there are all sorts of collaborators in this dominance and, and destruction. Mm-hmm. And Pharaoh said, idlers, you are idlers. Therefore you say, let us go sacrifice to the Lord, and now go work, and no straw will be given to you, but the quota of bricks you will give. And the Israelite overseer saw themselves coming to harm, saying, you shall not deduct from your bricks from your daily rate. And they encountered Moses and Aaron, poised to meet them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, that the Lord look upon you and judge, for you have made us repugnant in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. Okay, let's pause here for a second. Yeah. Right? I I mean, gosh, you see this model over and over and over again, right? Where you have an oppressed class, an oppressed people, an oppressed group. Someone speaks up, the powerful clamp down even harder. And who do you blame? You blame those people who spoke up. Yes, uh, but what's curious to me here is we just had a, a midrash that said that these overseers are going to become the prophets of God. Uh, right now, they're not acting all that prophety of God. Yes, God-like. yes, yes. Um, though, though they are playing a central role here, which is that ultimately their concern seems to be over the day-to-day welfare of the people. Ah, right. They're, ah. They're, they. They may be short-sighted. They may be quite literally blaming the messenger. Uh, but they are taking the people's lived experiences as central. You know, I read a uh, um, this great book by Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. There's one paragraph that just stuck with me where he talks about we tell these stories like there is a redemption. Right? We, we tell these stories about Dr. King and the civil rights movement and how it sort of redeems the brokenness of slavery, right? how we fought against Jim Crow, how we've gotten better. Uh, or in the Jewish world, we often have a similar sort of narrative that leads from the Holocaust to the state of Israel, right? this redemptive moment. Hmm. Uh, and yet, this is from uh, Coates' book, 
And yet, of course, there's no redemption for those people who lived as slaves, suffered as slaves, and died as slaves. It's only in our own telling and our own sense of feeling good about history that there is redemption. It's not in the lives of the actual people who only got one life, and that was an awful life. It's just, it's stuck with me. And so in that sense, you know, I think these overseers have a point that this is real. What Pharaoh is doing to the people in general is terrible, but it's getting worse. And these people don't get another life to try it all over again. Does that mean that if we are to take action in the world, uh, we have to do so with a... I don't know, an almost almost an indifference uh, to life. Like I, I'm, I'm trying to think through the attitude, and in my own life, you know, like going to to rallies and things, um, and I know that if I were to become really really invested in the cause, if I were like out there all the time instead of like once a month, which is about what I managed to do. Um, that I would have to sacrifice a great deal of what I think of think makes my life worth living right now right mm-hmm. um and i i almost wonder like i don't know there's this line from t.s Eliot uh at the end of his poem ash wednesday he says teach us to care and not to care teach us to stand still um and I, for me it's one of the most powerful lines of poetry i've ever read mm-hmm. um and kind of forms a mantra for many things in my life but part of it in terms of activism and injustices, teach us to care deeply about injustices so deeply that in a certain way we don't care about our own individual narrative. Like we subsume it hmm. Hmm. whole and it might lead to our death and we are okay with that. Hmm. <laughs> Which, you know, I can, I can state as like an intellectual proposition kind of emotionally and in actuality it seems... Uh, almost ungraspable to hmm. me. Hmm. I'm going to chew on that. I'm going to chew on that. You know, I, I keep thinking of how often in revolutions the revolutionaries become so sort of all consumed with the world they're trying to create Yeah, that they end up destroying the lives of those they're trying to redeem. Right. right, the shining path people who have to burn down uh, the world so that they can create a new one. But even in small ways, how often it is that we sacrifice uh, the very real people with us for the imagined world we think we can make. Hmm. Well, and so interesting that we started today talking about community organizing, really, right? So we were kind of imagining this model where Moses and Aaron are out gathering the goodwill of the community and everybody's on board and it all seems fine. Um, Almost maybe as if they think this is going to be easy, just go to Pharaoh and ask and it'll be fine. Um, And now we're getting to a point where the actual pressures of events are beginning to break the community apart. Like you can you can get you can see why maybe only four fifths actually leave, um, or not four fifths one one fifth one actually fifth, leave yeah. and four fifths stay, because uh, all of these pressures of events are are making all sorts of people doubt 
the the justice of the cause, or even if it's just whether it's worth doing right now, given everything that will be lost because of it. I, it's such a complicated question. <laughs> I sometimes wonder how we do anything as a species, <laughs> but we do. But we do. But we do. Um, okay, shall okay, we finish so- our uh, chapter? We're almost there. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so the overseers have complained to Moses and Aaron, and now Moses is going to go and complain to God. So now we're on verse 22. So I I actually want to add one uh, verse here, with your permission, uh, and add the first verse of chapter 6. So the rabbis end up dividing all of the Torah, all the five books of Moses, into readings, into literal, uh, uh, what do you call this, Lectionary readings? Did I use that word right? Yeah, you did. Uh, yeah, before there's a lectionary, there's the sort of uh, rabbinic division. Uh, but it's also before there are chapters or numbers. So sometimes the way that the rabbis divide these things is totally different. So the very first verse of chapter 6, the rabbis put as a continuation of this conversation of chapter 5. Uh, so with your permission, I will include it here uh, as well. Yeah. So then Moses returned to Adonai and said, O Lord, why did you bring harm upon this people? Why did you send me? By the way, the the word here is Lord, uh, Adonai, it says, um, uh, in the original Hebrew, which is why in your Bibles at home, it's probably lowercase, or a capital L, and the rest is lowercase. Um, So then Moses says to Adonai, returned to Adonai and said, O Lord, why did you bring me harm? Uh, Why did you bring harm upon this people? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he's dealt worse with this people. And still, you have not delivered your people. So if we end there, if we end at chapter 5, we end with Moses' plea and really Moses' rebuke of God and his questioning of God, questioning in the biggest sense of that. Uh, But if we include the first verse of chapter 6, it's a very different ending uh, to our story this week, which becomes... God's response. Then the Eternal said to Moses, You shall soon see what I will do to Pharaoh. He shall let them go because of a greater might. Indeed, because of a greater might, he shall drive them from his land. We get this sort of um, powerfully, redemptively ominous statement at the end of our reading. Okay, um, to bring it back around to what we talked about at the beginning, your translation says the eternal, or were you adding that in? Uh, so I, I changed it to the word eternal here, yeah. Um, yod okay. vav We've got that word. We've sometimes called it Adonai, and here I said eternal. Sorry, that was a, a habit of mine. No, I like it um, because, it, again, this is an attributive description of God. And, um, you know, the Ancient of Days, for instance, is, a, is another often used attributive name of God, mm. um, which basically means the same thing. And I, I feel like it goes to what we were just saying um, about what is risked and in a cause and about heaven and or the afterlife or all of that, right? Like, I don't think Pharaoh thinks necessarily in terms of eternity. Uh, You know, he's looking at the map. He's trying to figure out where this god is and what temporal action this god has taken in terms of conquest. And Moses and Aaron are dealing with a god who sits outside of time. And because God sits outside of time and presumably can see all of temporality, 
uh, nothing is lost, nothing is wasted. Mm. Uh, so even those slaves who are like dying because uh, the the pharaoh is is heaping more work upon them, um, in the eye of God, uh, they are seen forever. <laughs> so, yeah. So I really like that eternal. I mean, I think it's really important to keep in mind that this God is just always going to be all about ultimate things. Um, you know, even as this God relates and speaks to and acts within history. Um, this is still a God who is about ultimate things. Never, never diminished to just temporality. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, this is sort of, you know, going back to our conversation last week, how I see this moment of revelation of the divine name to Moses. Then Moses wants a God like Pharaoh wanted, you know, what cities have you captured? What do you look like? What's your name? Right. And God looks back at Moses and says, no, no, it doesn't really work like that, Moses. I am that I am. Ehia, Asher, Ehia. Um, which, of course, yod heh the name that we end up getting for God, that we keep translating as Adonai or the Lord or eternal, uh, is a verb, uh, is the same verb as Ehia. Um, the verb of existence. Right. Right, which begs the question, what, what is real existence here? You know, is it this kind of eternal uh, being, this ultimacy, uh, or is it the lives we live where we struggle and die? Mm. Um, I'm just thinking about the ta Coates quote and thinking it is true that many, many people died uh, in the struggle for justice and while enslaved uh, in America. It is also true that many, many of those people deeply believed in uh, injustice in another world, in, in eternal life, essentially, <laughs> right? They believed that they would get a reward. Um, so they were able, even in the pain of their temporality, to somehow access a vision of the eternal uh, where their pain would be removed. I, and I actually uh, uh, found that quote from uh, ta Coates. Uh, you must resist the common urge toward the comforting narrative of divine law, toward fairy tales that imply some irrepressible justice. The enslaved were not brick in your road, and their lives were not chapters in your redemptive history. They were people turned to fuel for the American machine. Enslavement was not destined to end, and it is wrong to claim our present circumstance, no matter how improved, as the redemption for the lives of people who never asked for the posthumous, untouchable glory of dying for their children. Our triumphs can never compensate for this. And I think he's right. I don't think it contradicts what I was just saying, because yeah. what he's saying yeah. is we can't tell a historical story that has redemption. You know, we can't, from a later position in temporality, claim that our later position uh, undoes or makes better the earlier position. Um, but we can say there's something other than history and other than temporality. And within that, we might find justice. Hmm. Hmm. Does that make sense? From your lips to God's ears. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, wow, it's saying a lot. Um, so we've come to the end of the chapter, but before we end, Daniel, I want to just ask you a question. Um, one of one of the gifts of this is that I've uh, on Wednesday evenings after we re- record the podcast, I go off uh, to St. John's Worthington where we're doing a Exodus Bible study, and um, those people are great and smart and wonderful. And they sometimes uh, call me on some of the easy assumptions or some of the more kind of flight of fancy questions that, that you and I have discussed. Mm. So last week uh, we were, you know, we were again asking how how old is Moses at this point? Um, and somebody was like, "Well, I'm just going to look it up." And they looked it up, and they were like, "Well, Moses was 80 years old." And we and I felt convicted because I had been like, well, Moses is probably a young man. He might be like 18. He might be 19. Um, and I realized, well, I've read the Bible before. I should have remembered that his age is clearly stated. Um, but the question I want to ask you is, is what does age mean in these terms? Uh, I mean, a- after that, I was like looking at some paintings and in Botticelli's uh, the early life of Moses, the scene of Moses at the burning bush is depicted, and Moses is a young man in that painting. So it's not only uh, we in this moment who have thought that way. Uh, but in Judaism, you know, when you look at these incredibly long-lived people in the Bible, do you just kind of take it at face value? Yes, yes, they live 900 years, or does it mean something different? You know, I'd say for me at least, I, I won't speak, speak for Judaism writ large, but for me, at least, it's a key for how I'm supposed to read these texts. That it puts me, and I mean this in a positive, not in a pejorative sense, it puts me into a mythological framework where ah. I stop reading this like history mm-hmm. and I start reading it like story. Uh, and I think that's more powerful because... yeah. Myth tells me how to live my life. History just tells me what happened. And so knowing that Moses was 80 at this moment, or 120, we're told, when he dies, uh, you know, that that tells me how I'm supposed to read this. And, you know, there there is a progression, and rabbis have seen this for uh, uh, thousands of years, seen it this way. There's a progression in terms of the lifespan of the Torah early on is absurd. And works right. more and more uh, as time goes by, it gets closer and closer to the world we live in. Mm-hmm. And I think the Bible writ large, as you progress through the historical narrative of it, through the arc of it, the world becomes much more like our world and much less of the mythic world and much more with a world that has the sorts of sort of real life political issues that we have. I is it, what do you make of this? Uh I mean I agree in some ways the question was raised, you know, it doesn't matter how old Moses is and I don't know if I'm satisfied with my answer at the time, but it, but it, what I said was um it just it helps us to imagine him, right? Um because we are participants in this story by the fact that we're reading it and interpreting it and thinking about it. Um and the way we choose to participate, the way we choose to read it, uh, shows the way we choose to participate. So you and I have spent a lot of time and will continue to spend a lot of time talking about 
current social issues. And I think we both know that most of the agitation in social issues is driven by very young people. Yeah. And and so to think of Moses as young is helpful for contextualizing it in my own time, you know, taking this story and bringing it into my own time. Uh, it helps me to think uh, I am no longer young. I am not going to be out on the barricades every single day. Mm. I will, I'll, mm. I'll help where I can. Uh, but that probably means that I'm also not Moses in this story, right? And that I need to be looking to someone who has all of that, that powerful energy um, and accepting their leadership. Though, you know, I, I think our prophets tend not to be young, right? Yeah, I guess it's true. Well, our, but MLK was in his 20s when it all started. Yeah, but I, I'm even thinking, you know, sort of someone like uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Barber today in the Moral Mo- uh, Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina. Uh-huh. Right? It's a uh-huh. young person's movement, and yet he's, I don't know how old. He sure is not a young man. Uh, 60s, maybe? Yeah, okay. Uh, well, thank you. That's a really good counterexample. That's that's true, and I need to keep that in mind as well. Oh, nope, nope. I apologize to uh, uh, Reverend Barber. 54. 54. Spring chicken, really. Spring chicken. Please, God. Uh, in in biblical fact, terms, say, only like 180. Go ahead. What were you going to say? <laughs> I was going to say, in biblical terms, he's only like 180. So actually, Jewishly, (laughs) the thing you respond when you say someone's name, particularly someone who's a tzaddik, someone who's a uh, um, righteous person, uh, Uh you know, the the sort of person where you'd want to respond, may they live long years. Um, You say, ad mea vestrim, until 120, uh, which we get from Moses, that that that's what we should want from our leaders uh, or from, from the best of us. Uh, my mother always says this whenever anyone mentions Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She goes, may she live to 120. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we should wrap up for the day. Um, I will say that Lost in the Wilderness, A Priest and a Rabbi Explore Exodus, is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, I blogcast at prayerbookart.com. I, I blog at prayerbookart.com. Danny, where can people find you? I, so I'll use this time to give a plug. Uh, I would love to come out to your church wherever you are. Uh, if you've got a uh, Bible group or uh, to speak on a Sunday or whatever it is, uh, I am available uh, as the rabbi in residence of the Episcopal Diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, for free as a gift from uh, uh, Christ Cathedral and from the diocese itself. Uh, so get in cut, touch with us through uh, adsobigread.org, and I'd love to come out. Great. Thank you so much, Daniel. May you live to 120. I may have a stream for you uh, as well, Carl. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.